This is Big Sky Lead, a dive into the stories about how government and politics drive the direction of Montana. This podcast is from the reporters of the Montana State News Bureau in Helena, your eyes and ears on state government. It's produced by me, Tom Bridge. Our team brings you their reporting and the stories behind the coverage as the Montana State Legislature meets in an unprecedented session. The 67th session of the Montana legislature wrapped up last week as lawmakers put the final touches on the state budget, a recreational marijuana program, and plans to spend about $2 billion in federal COVID aid. The last days were marked by a mad scrabble by some Republicans to amend previously voted down policy into remaining bills. There was also a last-ditch effort to change a bipartisan brokered deal on cannabis implementation that hung up lawmakers for hours on the final day of the session. Our beer was there for all the action. Let's dive in with Seaborn on what happened with this attempt to re-engineer the pop bill at the last minute. This all played out on a pretty rushed timeline. So, so can you start by walking us through what exactly happened on the last day of the session? Yeah, so kind of leading up to this moment, the legislature had spent the last month kind of working through uh, three proposals just to whittle them down to one. Um, That one was HB 701, and it kind of had the governor's blessing already because it funded his new addiction and substance abuse treatment program with those new tax revenues. It also delivered uh, the bulk of the new revenues to the general fund, but it also had a lot of compromises um, for Republicans and Democrats uh, so that they could finally get it get behind it and pass it in the last week. But meanwhile, um, House Bill 640 had kind of been floating around in the background, kind of a cleanup bill that never really got any emphasis by any lawmakers who were really involved in that process. So that bill essentially just meant to codify some language, keeping people, you know, under 21 out of dispensaries. But its title was so broad that anything marijuana related could kind of be amended in there at any time. And so On the last day of the legislature, I'm hearing from a lot of sources who are really worried um, about what's happening to this bill, that it might um, hijack the entire implementation. And so uh, lawmakers are kind of in a a hurry to push leadership for a conference committee to hear out the amendments that the last couple of Republicans want want to put in that bill. And uh, what we eventually saw on that last day is that these amendments could have had huge consequences. You know, these changes would have essentially taken away funding from the general fund and locked it up in a trust fund account. This kind of gets at the heart of what a lot of Republicans didn't like about HB 701. Um, the idea is that they didn't want all this new tax revenue money in the general fund to just continue expanding more government programs. And so the problem was that this was such a wrench in the entire package that had just passed days earlier. Um, it had gotten so much work in the Senate to emerge with enough things that Democrats and Republicans kind of had on their checklist to support without those things. Um, there was certainly kind of an unintentional coalition of Democrats and Republicans that could have killed the initial implementation bill and just left us with um, initiative 190. That language is already in statute effort was passed by voters last year. And so, you know, as I sat in the Senate uh, last week on the last day of the legislature, there are definitely a couple of lawmakers kind of describing what was going on as, as sort of a hijacking of the original bill. And, um, you know, Tom, the 
the last day of the legislature, things were really wrapping up uh, nicely until this new bill came into play. And it definitely held up the legislature for several hours on that last day of the session. And so uh, the other thing that this bill had uh, would have been a change to the medical program that said chronic pain patients could only get their medical cards from a board certified physician. So that would mean that uh, you know, your ability to get a medical card from, say, just your family physician uh, would have been changed to you can only get that uh, card from one of four board certified physicians in the whole state. And so while the House, which had this super majority of Republicans, passed that new plan, uh, Senator Ellie Boldman is a Missoula Democrat who has had business in the medical marijuana industry, um, kind of seized on this change in the medical marijuana program and made a pretty compelling speech just to knock it down. Uh, you know, she brought up opioid addiction and other factors in, in taking away medical marijuana, saying this could potentially end some lives if they made this change. And so uh, right after Boldman's speech, the Senate killed that bill pretty handily, 36-14. And you could kind of feel the tension release in the room just because there was only a few minutes um, later that Senator Dwayne Ankeny called for sine die and the Senate adjourned for the session. So it was a pretty remarkable uh, close to this whole marijuana implementation process as far as the, the legislature's involvement. Okay. So now that we have that last day situation wrapped up, um, can you walk us through how the program looks, you know, what the legislature actually passed and if that has been signed by Governor Gianforte yet? So I'm going to start with kind of what, um, I guess, customers and the general public can expect, just because I don't think we got much of a focus from them through this legislative process. So um, right now, as of January 1st of this year, it is legal to possess and transport and, um, up to a one ounce of marijuana. And so you can, it's for, for those purposes, I mean, marijuana is legal, but what we don't have until January of 2022 is recreational marijuana on the retail shelves. And so um, Montana's tax on recreational is going to be 20%. There's a local option for a 3%, uh, up to 3% local tax. Um, and then we're kind of uh, going to be a split state here, for, at least for the foreseeable future. The, the kind of compromise they finally came to is um, over this problem where roughly half of the counties in the state um, voted to approve marijuana legalization last year, while the other uh, 28 or so did not. And so what is going to happen is um, the original initiative, I-190, um, would allow counties to opt out of marijuana business licenses if they wanted to do that. Initially, HB 701 was going to allow uh, we kind of flipped that and said, if counties want to allow marijuana businesses, recreational marijuana businesses um, in their jurisdiction, then they're going to have to hold a local election to um, to opt into that. And so what they did instead is say those counties that um, approved legalization, they will um, be an opt out, which means that they can start selling recreational marijuana in uh, January 2022. And for whatever reason, local governments want to um, shut that out, then they can have an election to say we want to opt out. But the other half of the counties, they'll be opt in. So it's meanings, meaning that um, there will be no recreational marijuana in those counties until the local governments have an election that say we want to opt in to recreational. And so 
Um, while we've kind of got this split, I think it's also important to say those opt-in counties, um, medical marijuana programs are going to be, um, if they're already there, they'll be grandfathered in. And so along with uh, sort of the retail side of things, the um, legislature also created an expungement court. The Supreme Court is going to have to appoint a judge to sort of handle all the expungements that should be coming in. Um, basically people being able to wipe their records of uh, any charge or citation that um, would now be a legal uh, possession charge, say. And so um, that's uh, that's going to be coming up for people who may have had their um, process already started in their local jurisdiction or whatever court they were charged in. Uh, people can look forward to that. You know, the medical providers who have had a pretty rough um, go of surviving through this industry through the um, big federal raids in 2011 and the kind of reactionary legislature that almost shut things down in the years after that. Um, you know, the medical people who are still in the game at this point, they'll have the first 18 months to get into um, the new recreational market before any new business licenses are signed and so are approved by the Department of Revenue. And so, um, the, the idea that we won't have this explosion of dispensaries or um, shops around Montana, I think, may hold true with that. But at the same time, uh, we with the new market, I imagine we're going to see some providers who kind of expand their uh, footprint um, wherever they happen to be. And uh, that's definitely, I think, what a lot of providers have already been thinking probably in the months since it kind of became... Um, pretty people became pretty confident that recreational marijuana was going to be legalized last year. And so uh, that's kind of what is on deck for um, recreational in the coming months. All the medical providers are going to be moving over to the Department of Revenue pretty soon. Um, but of course, that's all contingent on HB 701 being signed. It hasn't been signed as of today. I just checked. Uh, but I think, like I said earlier, it's uh, a pretty good chance that this one gets signed into law because it uh, funds $6 million towards the Heart Fund, and that's uh, Governor Greg Gianforte's uh, program to fund addiction and substance abuse treatment. So uh, that's kind of where we're at today, and I think um, you know a lot of medical providers are going to be seeing a lot of um, tweaks and shifts in how they're able to do business just with the change from the health department over to the revenue department. But um, generally speaking, it looks like it's a go for now. So Seaborn, uh, another major thing you covered this session actually doesn't end at the end of the session. And that's this Republican led investigation into the judiciary. Can you wrap up for us how we got to this point and what we expect during the interim? Yeah, the um, select committee on judicial transparency and accountability uh, said in pretty clear terms two weeks ago that they were going to um, keep this investigation going through the interim. And they uh, got the funding to do that last uh, week with, I think, $286,000 to kind of conduct whatever business they seem fit um, through the interim, which goes right up until, uh, I think, mid-2022. And so um, along with funding to carry out the, um, the committee's objectives. There's also been funding for a new special counsel that kind of works at the legislature's discretion. The sponsor of that um, funding amendment 
Representative Casey Knudsen of Malta said that this position was essentially so the legislature could keep tabs on state government. Um, I'm not sure that I or anybody else saw um, a major opening of an investigation into any other branches of government in the last couple months. And so I think it's presumed, uh, certainly it's open possibility that this special counsel will be used by that uh, committee to um, to sort of dig into the judiciary. And so what the things are that this committee wants to look into is um, public records retention is certainly one we saw um, an email poll on pending legislation of judges back in January that sort of, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, was deleted by the Supreme Court uh, administrator. You know, there were other polls that weren't deleted. It's not clear why this one was. And so um, Republican lawmakers who form this committee have pointed to this as like, you know, pretty serious allegation of violation of state laws. And so along with public records retention, public records access is another one that they want to talk about. Uh, we're mostly looking at these emails that the Supreme Court, for a lot of reasons, has really tried to safeguard over the last couple of weeks as this committee has kind of peeled back more and more layers. Um, along with that is the allegation of, uh, you know, judicial impartiality. Lawmakers want to say that uh, polling on this legislation, which typically um, has involved, you know, cha- possible changes to the judicial process or how people get to the judiciary, is uh, to, to be polled on that, to give an opinion on whether or not you support it. Uh, they kind of say is the same thing as um, issuing a judicial opinion on whether or not that uh, proposal is constitutional or, or legal. And so, and, you know, a lot of judges uh, who participated in these email polls did respond with um, a few lines that said, you know, this bill is probably unconstitutional at its inception and other things that certainly uh, laid down what sounded like judicial opinions on some of this pending legislation. And so that's got a lot of Republican lawmakers fired up. Um, you know, Democrats on the other side of this, uh, they've got two members on that committee who have sort of dug their heels in uh, as the committee's moved forward, trying to call this uh, entire process sort of a um, you know, a stab at undermining the public confidence in the judiciary because the judiciary will inevitably hear so many legal challenges to what um, this really Republican heavy legislature signed with a Republican governor um, at the end of the process. And so the um, committee meets again on Wednesday at 8 a.m. We're going to uh, be there and see what the final draft of their report uh, looks like and says and what kind of goals they have moving into the interim, but I think this is going to be probably one of more the one of the more bitter fights as we move into the um, to the interim. Tom, one of the issues you covered all session, uh, how to handle hunting licenses for outfitted non-residents, popped up at the last minute too. As an amendment to broadly titled legislation billed as a cleanup bill, can you explain uh, what went on there? Sure, Tom. So, um, uh, first I should, I should give a shout out to Brett French at the Billings Gazette because he, um, was the one who actually covered the original bill, um, uh, which was Senate Bill 143 on, um, from, uh, Senator Jason Ellsworth. Um, that bill would have essentially overturned a 2010, um, ballot initiative, which, um, did away with outfitter guaranteed licenses. Um, that bill came, um, 
through and um you know had some uh, some pretty serious testimony that went back and forth on it um when it went to the floor and this was a couple months ago uh senator tom jacobson from great falls he's a democrat um was able to get enough bipartisan support to actually amend that bill remove the guaranteed licenses and um set up what would be basically an earlier drying period with a, with an additional fee um the thought being there that um you could um, guarantee your clientele a little earlier in the season if you had um, this earlier draw period. So since that 2010 ballot initiative, um, there was a number of years where the non-resident big game licenses went underdrawn. Um, the last couple years, couple three, five years, um, it's been steadily increasing the interest again. Um, it's to the point now where um this last year and part of it's because of COVID and part of it is sort of maybe this renewal and the interest in the outdoors because of um, COVID people put off trips last year, but they had a big surge in non-resident license interest. So uh, for, for people that don't know the state of Montana gives out 17,000 um, non-resident hunting licenses for deer and elk. Um, the way you get that is you put it in for it like a lottery so if you win one, you win one. If you don't, then you can purchase what's called a preference point. So that will allow you to uh, get a get a second chance the next year. So it increases your odds. Um, the early on when when one forty three went to uh, was amended, it went to finance and claims, and then we just sort of never heard from it again. Um, I would say during the last maybe three four weeks of the session. Um, you know, I started through some of my sources started telling me that, you know, I think the outfitters are lobbying up there. They want to see some sort of bill come forward on that, um, some sort of um, either relief package or some changes that were proposed in 143. Um, to that end, we, we actually did find um, that there was a lawmaker that requested an amendment that basically would have put outfitter sponsored licenses into House Bill 637, which is from Representative Seth Bergley. He's a Republican from Joliet. Um, it was sort of billed as a cleanup bill. Um, cleanup bills, you know, usually make sort of minor tweaks. But this one was was pretty far-ranging. Had some new programs in it. Um, seemed to change a lot, of, a lot of things. And it got a lot of debate and actually a little bit of criticism because people felt like, boy, you're sure trying to make a lot of changes that um, should maybe see some more debate. Um, so that... That sailed through the House anyway, um, got to the Senate, and they intentionally amended it um, to be able to send it to um, what's called the Free Conference Committee. So it's a bicameral committee, um, four Republicans, two Democrats get to meet on it. Um, That happened the day before the last day of the session, this uh, Free Conference Committee met. Um, And what happened was, uh, Bergley actually brought an amendment, and what that amendment does is um, allow any non-resident who is si- who was already signed up to go with an outfitter before April first can now purchase an outfitter or now purchase a non-resident license. Um, the other thing it does is it changes the preference point system. So if you are sponsored by an outfitter and you don't draw, you can actually buy an extra preference point for the next year. So um, if you're outfitted, then you would, in theory, have um, a better chance 
the the following year to draw than say like do it yourself non-resident hunter. Uh, this obviously drew a lot of attention um, because it moved, but because it moved so quickly, it moved um, from that conference committee to the floors, um, second and third reading vote and passed the legislature all in, you know, a period of about 10 hours. Um, that's definitely fast for the end of, for a bill, but pretty common for the end of the session. Now, um, that certainly got a lot of people pretty riled up, um, people that felt like this got amended in too late, um, that it wasn't debated by the public, and that um, it went against the spirit of the 2010 ballot initiative that said we don't want to have guaranteed outfitter licenses. And Tom, you covered a lot of other bills uh, that drew a lot of controversy this session uh, from efforts to address ballooning elk numbers uh, to the balance of power between the legislature and the executive branch through Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks and the Fish and Wildlife Commission. Uh, What are some of the things that stand out to you from this session? Yeah, so Tom, one thing I think that that has stood out for me is we saw um, probably the most controversial bills um, that I saw this session had to deal with wolves and trapping. Um, and we have seen all of those bills pass, um, basically through the Republican majority and, um, the governor has signed all of them. Um, so you have bills that allow snaring for wolves that extend the trapping season. Um, you have a bill that drew a lot of controversy because, um, it allows private payments, um, basically reimbursements to wolf trappers and hunters. Um, That makes a a pretty significant change in state law. Uh, Previously, you could pay somebody um, what's called based on effort. So like um, you could hire somebody to say, come and trap on your land for wolves um, to protect livestock, for example. Um, What this does is it allows you pay for success. So um, what critics of this bill have said is that, um, it's essentially putting a bounty on animals um, that you're paying uh, for a dead animal. Um, and that crosses ethical lines. You know, people that, that supported that bill though, you know, they're saying this is, this isn't about making money. It's about reimbursement, um, reimbursement for costs. So it's not a bounty. So, you know, I don't know um, really that we ever found like an absolute answer one way or the other on that. I think it, it it's really a, whether you're for that bill or not against that bill, how it falls. Um, then the last bill that just recently got signed is um, Senate Bill 314. That's from Bob Brown, who's a Republican um, senator from Thompson Falls. Um, that bill is pretty interesting because it directs Fish, Wildlife, and Parks and the Fish and Wildlife Commission to actually reduce wolf numbers in Montana. So the the last part of the 314 is um, it, it makes some suggestions. Um, it doesn't mandate, but says um, some things that could be used in, in areas with high wolf numbers to reduce numbers. That includes um, some things that drew up some ethical concerns like hunting at night, um, using bait, or allowing unlimited um, harvest of wolves um, by a single person. So um, this is getting to be pretty controversial controversial stuff and we're already seeing some pushback on it um since it's been assigned um one of the advocacy groups that 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 came out and was against all these bills is is basically now telling people to not come to montana and use outfitters because the outfitters association um endorsed these bills so 
Um, I think there's still more to follow on this, where the fallout's going to come. Um, but also, I think um, a lot of people in Montana certainly want to see uh, wolf numbers um, reduce. So uh, I think we'll, we'll see how it shakes out. Uh, while we're on the topic of wolves, uh, for some watching this session, the legislation dealing with wolf management and trapping became higher profile um, after news broke that Governor Greg Gianforte trapped a wolf without taking the required trapping course, course beforehand. Um, what effect, if any, did that have on the session? We did uh, some follow-up on that story, but Nate Hedgie um, with Public Radio was the one who broke that. Um, you know, I, I think if anything, and I think this is something that we're going to continue to follow, um, all of these bills, as well as Gianforte's uh, wolf and written warning, um, I think has really amplified um, the people that are against trapping and the people that are against um, harvesting wolves. Um, I think we've seen attempts in the past to limit certain methods of take, um, basically um, trying to ban trapping on public lands. I would not be surprised in the least if we see that again and that sort of um, that sort of fight reinvigorated. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to see going going forward. But I think during the session itself, um, I didn't see any real effect because I uh, it didn't come up as often as I thought it would. Um, certainly, it was a huge headline, and I think people were thinking about it. And part of the, the reason too, I think, is decorum. Um, there's legislative rules about like naming people specifically by name. So, you, you know, you start getting into the governor and um, some of that, that gets tamped, tamped down a little bit. So Sam, uh, you also covered a lot of bills that saw this same last minute effort to make changes to legislation through amendments that happened with a bill that will change who can return ballots for other Mon others in Montana. Right. Uh, what happened there? Yeah, so that was um, that was actually one of the more controversial bills of the session, um, at least in terms of election legislation. Um, this was introduced earlier um, as sort of a reboot of a, um, a ballot collection restriction law that had been passed by the voters um, a few years back, and um, it was actually struck down by a pair of state district judges last year before the general election. Um, who found that it was unconstitutional and uh, and had disproportionately affected Native American voters. Um, so House Bill 406 had been introduced earlier in the session um, with some tweaks to that original bill that was struck down, but a lot of the kind of meat of that uh, legislation still intact. Um, basically, it would have required um, pretty much anybody turning in anybody else's ballot um, to sign their names to a registry that would have been uh, considered public information um, and some other restrictions on who could collect and turn in another person's ballot. And this is um, pretty standard procedure for a lot of get out the vote groups, especially um, on Native American reservations and on college campuses. Um, so Democrats have uh, kind of viewed this this type of law as unfairly targeting Democratic voters because those groups in particular tend to vote more democratic. Um, anyways, that so that bill was voted down um, pretty decisively um, on third reading a few weeks back. And then 
among a number of bills that kind of saw fresh life in the waning hours of the legislature. Um, this was one of them that was partially amended back into um, kind of an unrelated uh, piece of election legislation. Um, the uh, the bill that it was added to um, was pretty uncontroversial. It passed with pretty wide margins initially, uh, granted some rulemaking authority to the Secretary of State. Um, but uh, Democrats saw this this move as, you know, kind of attempting to subvert, um, you know, the process that had already played out. Um, so so an amendment was was added to this bill um, that would only it was more narrowly tailored to only affect people who receive a pecuniary benefit from turning in another person's ballot. Um, and and Democrats criticized that as kind of attempting to basically just um, reintroduce the same legislation um, and, and also noted that pecuniary benefit isn't defined in the bill. Um, and that potentially that could apply pretty broadly. For example, um, if somebody um, is bed bound or, um, or disabled in a nursing home um, or another facility like that, um, you know, somebody that works for that facility might be receiving a pecuniary benefit just by doing their jobs, even though, um, you know, they would normally just help this person out by turning in their ballot for them since they, you know, maybe can't make it to the post office or, or make it in on election day. Um, there were a whole lot of other changes to our election laws this session, right, Sam? Uh, what stands out to you as some of the major ones you covered? Um, so, yeah, so I mentioned that um, that that ballot collection bill um, mostly got voted down. Um, and that was probably one of the bigger um, successes for Democrats um, who really didn't see too many of their proposals um, advance in the legislature and were unable to stop a lot of Republican proposals. Um, Republicans had a lot of success on the election front. Uh, two of the biggest initiatives they passed um, were ending election day registration, um, which has been in place in Montana for over a decade and um, it actually survived the previous attempts to get rid of it. Um, and uh, another, uh, what's kind of been called the voter ID bill, which basically just um, creates stricter requirements on what um, what type of ID is acceptable for somebody going to vote in person on election day, and specifically excludes college IDs, which previously had been acceptable forms of ID, um, and that immediately was challenged by the Democrats, who who have um, argued all along that you know, that it unfairly targets one group. Um, and, and Republicans throughout this process have pointed to, um, you know, a lot of the doubts that people expressed about the outcome or about the process um, of the, the 2020 elections and concerns that the system, while maybe there weren't any specific instances of fraud that they could point to, um, had some potential security holes in it. So Republicans have kind of framed this issue as one of shoring up uh, election integrity. Um, and then there were, there were a number of other smaller, um, smaller bills that, that passed that were Republican and 
uh, priorities, um, one that affects campaign finance, um, you know, could have some pretty substantial impacts on the influence of money in the state in coming years. Um, it significantly raises the amounts of money that um, the individuals are allowed to donate to individual candidates and maybe more significantly gets rid of uh, Montana's limits on political action committee money uh, donated to individual candidates. Republicans have argued that this will actually create more transparency by allowing um, people to see, allowing people to donate directly to candidates and see who is donating to those candidates uh, rather than funneling their money through PACs. But, um, you know, Democrats have argued that, you know, essentially this is just going to result in more money in politics. So I think, uh, the next election cycle will certainly be interesting to watch and to see kind of how that plays out. One bill that Gene Forte signed last Friday is kind of a crossover of two things you've covered this session, uh, changes in voting laws and changes in the state's pandemic response. Uh, that bill requires the governor to get legislative consent to change any election laws, like how we saw most of the 2020 elections done by mail because of public health concerns. What were some of the other changes to the state's COVID response uh, that the legislature enacted? Yeah, so there was a lot of backlash to um, to the to the governor's uh, previous governor Steve Bullock, a Democrat. Um, there was a lot of Republican backlash to his response to the COVID pandemic, and um, and there was also a lot of Republican backlash to the actions of local health authorities um, doing things like instituting mask mandates in counties, um, as well as limiting hours of operation for bars and other uh, types of businesses. And then another another couple of bills that have been signed into law, um, House Bill 121 and House Bill 257, um, both affect the power of local health boards in counties to um, to pass laws that affect business. Um, you know, essentially Republicans wanted to make sure that in a future state of emergency or pandemic, um, health boards have to go to the county um, in order to be able to, um, you know, to pass any sort of new rules or regulations that could potentially limit the um, the freedom of, of enterprise, essentially, in the county, the ability of customers to get goods and services and of businesses to be able to provide those. Uh, Holly, you tracked another piece of COVID-related legislation, and that was the bill that spends about $2 billion in American Rescue Plan Act money. How did the legislature figure out how to spend that much money in such a short time? Yeah, so it was a pretty fascinating process to watch. A lot of legislators equated it to basically doing House Bill 2, which is the state budget, but in less than half the time. Um, so it all came together really quickly. And the legislation that we ended up with is pretty interesting. And in some ways, it feels a little bit like the state budget bill in some pretty important ways. It's not at all like it. What it does is it appropriates the pot of money that the state has control over. So we get $2.7 billion total. The last I saw for that bill specifically, there's about $2 billion in it. It appropriates pots of money into state agencies and departments and some into divisions. So if you look at the state health department, there's 
the money directed to that of that about 115 million goes to a pot that's childcare grants. And then what it does is sets up all these committees and commissions within each sort of topic area. And those committees, the first one I actually am seeing is starting to meet Thursday or Tuesday. So tomorrow, and they're going to look at project proposals for how to spend the money, rank them, put together lists. So that's how that money ultimately will get spent. And then another piece that's super interesting about it is the governor has power during the interim when legislators are not in town. If a project doesn't materialize or no longer meets requirements, they the governor's office has ability to take that project off the list and put on a new one. So it's a pretty interesting setup. I should clarify that's outside of infrastructure. The infrastructure part of this bill is pretty locked down with specific projects. One thing it does with infrastructure that I still am just like wrapping my head around is the bonding bill, which was fought over for sessions and sessions and failed. And we finally got this deal last year. We had one this year too. It just makes that a cash projects bill paid for with federal products or federal money. So that's $85 million just in projects that normally we would fight over all session, just done. And because we're not bonding for that money, we're saving like 26 million, I think, in interest that we pay on those projects. And then there's the wastewater, water, sewer projects all over the state that we normally use coal trust fund dollars for. That's just coming from ARPA too. So it's a pretty substantial, there's $275 million for broadband in there. Like it's transformational for the state of Montana. So it's a lot of money got spent pretty quickly and we'll have more clarity through the summer on that too. Okay, so while we're on the topic and you said it's transformational, uh, how does that influx of cash help our state budget? Uh, that's normally a big fight each session, like you said, and one of the last bills to get passed. Uh, it's also the only thing that lawmakers technically have to do is uh, pass a balanced budget. Yeah, so for one, the budget's a lot easier to balance when there's you know, about half the general fund dollars you normally have just extra coming into the state. There are some pretty interesting provisions with the ARPA money. So you can't use it to offset revenue reduction. So you can't come in and you know, wipe out income taxes for Montanans for a year and use the ARPA money to backfill it. But aside from that, a lot of things that we do can get paid for with this ARPA. And to me, this was the third session I've covered. And I have never seen, outside of some pretty intense debates, overall, this was a much more smooth House Bill 2 process than I've ever seen before. And I think part of it's more money, part of it's that a lot of debate had to go toward the ARPA bill. And at some point, you can only fight over things so much, so it gets spread around a little bit. But you know, other than at the end of the session, there was some really sharp debate over amendments that ended up in House Bill 2 that carry some policy language. There's now a review of abortions that have been paid for with Medicaid in the state that was added to the budget kind of at the last minute, which is, you know, I think other people on this podcast have talked about last minute changes to bills as a pretty remarkable thing at the end of this session. I think we saw more than we have before. But other than that, I think the budget got pretty well hammered together and it wasn't as bad of that free conference committee process at the end like Tom was talking about his bills go to that felt a lot smoother for house bill two and you know we saw it, it, it advanced pretty well the ARPA bill passed with huge bipartisan margins the budget generally fell along party lines which is pretty standard because Democrats in the minority don't you don't always get what they want. We did hear some Democrats you know, say it's it's an okay budget. They just felt they could have done more, especially with this influx of ARPA cash. But 
for this session in general is pretty smooth. Okay, so uh, before we wrap up today, um, I'd like to go around and get some um, quick comments from you guys about you know what the biggest takeaways. Seaborn, let's start with you. I know this was your, the first session that you've covered full time. What what was your big takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I am uh, so so tired still this week from uh, absolute madness of the last couple months, but it has been. Um, I mean, as a reporter, there's so much action every week, almost every day. When it gets towards the end, then it seems like it's every hour. And, um, you know, seeing kind of all these high-powered influences shape legislation has been, off, like, awfully interesting for me. But I also think um, kind of the amount of backdoor wrangling that goes on. I mean, we saw big trades, I think, even for – a judge's confirmation um, has been a pretty wild uh, experience to see that this is just how it's done. And like I've said, um, you know, to a lot of my colleagues in the last couple of days, I, I really am looking forward to the next one, being able to um, sort of return down a trail after the first time you go up there and you're, you're thinking like this trail sucks, this is hard. And but by the second or third time you do that hike, you're just like, oh, yeah, you know, this is we're almost there. We're almost halfway there, whatever. And so I think the, um, you know, of all the times I felt like I was disadvantaged uh, just by lack of experience this session, um, you know, I've, I learned so much about, um, I mean, just where to stand <laughs> at certain points in the legislature. And um, it's, it was, it's been interesting. I think, I think a lot of people um, in Montana are, got exactly what they wanted when they uh, voted last November, and I think a lot of people um, got really fired up about um, what happened that they they kind of voted against. And so, uh, I I think this whole nationalization of politics that's seeped down into the um, legislative level is really um, a driving factor that I didn't think it was going to be. And so, um, I you know next up is just the 2022 election and we'll have uh, that new congressional seat to fight over. And I'm just interested to see how um, the kind of ongoing political campaign, uh, what that drives next session. Tom, uh, what's your biggest takeaway? So I, I think there's some personal takeaways and then some, some observational takeaways a little more objectively. Um, with COVID this year, um, I essentially just decided I I, I, I wasn't going to go up to the Capitol. We already had a couple of reporters up there and that's a crowded bullpen and a lot of, a lot of people. And, um, that was really hard for me. Uh, there's something about being up there and this is my fourth, uh, fourth session. Um, you know, going up there, you, you corner lawmakers, you make them answer your questions. You have some FaceTime, you'd get tips from lobbyists or, you know, um, all that kind of good stuff. So, um, for me, it was, it was kind of a lonely experience <laughs> not being up there. Um, and, and I got to spend some quality time with my golden retriever. So that was good. He enjoyed that. But, um, so enough of you guys hearing about, about, about my life, but, um, the, the thing that I found really interesting this session is there are certain policies that I never thought to even think about coming. And um, 
you know, some of the stuff like, um, you know, Wiley Galt's bill on, on the, the landowner guaranteed tags, um, you know, that, that wasn't something that was even on my radar there. There's landowner tags in other States. Um, I, I'm familiar with some of those processes. Some not familiar with others, but, um, it, it was definitely a little shocking to my system to be hearing, um, sort of that be debated in the legislature. Cause that's never been a conversation I've seen before. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting is, um, there's and this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but there's a lot of policy bills that passed through the legislature that used to be more part of the executive branch. And, and for example, um, we saw a lot of bills, and these were a lot of the wolf bills and trapping bills, things like um, allowing snares or setting seasons or like the muzzleloader season, setting the season into law. That's really um, something that's, traditionally been done at the fish and wildlife commission um you know they do these big statewide meetings to try to talk about um, hunting licenses and and methods of take and you know should we have snares should we not should we trap wolves at all um how many wolves should we be able to trap um so to see those past the legislature wasn't necessarily surprising i guess i was a little surprised that that the governor went ahead and decided to sign all of those um you know, I think it's safe to say it, it, there were probably policies he agreed with, um, but at the same time, it really did shift um, some of the executive branch's decision-making power away from the governor and his appointees and let the legislature um, take the lead on that. So that, that um, when you really get into the nuts and bolts of how um, both law and then rules and regulations from agencies work together, um, that was something that, that – that surprised me a little bit um, that we didn't see some mandatory vetoes to sort of retain some of that, that um, fish and wildlife commission power that um, most of those bills were just signed. Okay, Sam, it's uh, it's your turn. What is uh, what's the biggest takeaway that you, you left with after covering this session? Um, yeah, so this was this was definitely my first session covering start to finish. Um, although I well, okay, that's not true. I came in a little bit late, um, but I had covered a session back in 2017, um, kind of from afar. I was working for the Daily Interlake and Kalispell at the time, um, and I covered the end of that session. And, and one thing that really struck me about this one was the number of last second changes to bills um, that went through kind of just in the final sort of 11th hour of the legislative session. Um, You know, I I think everybody acknowledges that that's kind of the nature of the beast. You have, um, you know, a lot a lot of things in the air. There's a lot of horse trading going on as, as the session is drawing to a close and a lot of deals are being made and, uh, and it's a, it's a deadline. Um, if you don't get your bill through before signing die, then it's dead. Um, but I think, um, you know, it was surprising to see just the number of previously defeated bills that seemed like, um, you know, they'd gone through the process and the process had more or less spoken, um, kind of, grafted onto um, legislation that was still alive at the end of the session. Um, and I, I think there was a lot of criticism of that process. Um, you know, generally uh, the rules allow for it. So there, 
you know, there wasn't necessarily anything wrong with that, but it was certainly from a reporter's perspective, uh, pretty hard to keep up with at times, even though, you know, we've got four very capable journalists at the Bureau. Um, you know, I was definitely uh, spending some days just kind of not sure which, uh, which free conference committee to, uh, to follow, you know, and, and how to make sure that I, I wasn't missing anything major that was kind of coming developing at the last second. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely one of my bigger takeaways at least. Holly, last but not least, uh, what's your biggest takeaway from this session? Um, I stress bought so much yarn and fabric this <laughs> session. <laughs> it's been really good for the fiber industry. Um, I think I was trying to think about what stood out to me. I think for one, just holding a session in COVID was such a different way to do it. And like what Tom was saying, it just so dramatically changed. I feel like a lot of the tone. And I think there was a lot of, you know, which was bound to happen with Republicans have held the majority in the session for some time, but with the Republican governor, the change there. But then I said to somebody at the end of the session about either say just felt harsher to them and a lot of it was because a lot of things just weren't in person until the very end which I noticed like reporting was like on the last day like all of the times you get to like look into the conversation that you needed for your reporting and it just didn't happen this session until like the last day I was like hey I'm finding the people I needed to and wanted to talk with and getting candid responses so that's part of it I think the other takeaway for me is it seemed like there was a pretty strong theme across everything this year and mostly led by majority Republicans about strengthening the role of the legislature. Like there was a lot of frustration during the interim to not have a say in, you know, emergency declarations from the governor and closures and stay at home orders and how the first round, you know, that 1.25 billion in CARES Act, how that was spent. So really asserting their role there, there's a lot of legislation that gives the legislature way more say now in the interim. Um, and that's through some of the ARPA stuff. There's committees. And now we've got interim budget committees, which we've never had before. So I think, and then like with the judiciary stuff, like Seaborn was talking about, like Tom with that balance between like the commission versus FWP and like laws, legislature, like all of that balance. And it just seems like the legislature is really trying to have this stronger role of where it kind of fits within the three branches of government. So I think that's going to be pretty interesting to watch through the interim. That's a wrap on the 67th legislature. Uh, we'll continue to follow as bills are signed and how legislation is implemented. Uh, but for now, we're going to take a two-week hiatus to go enjoy some sunshine outside of the Capitol basement press room. Uh, we'll be back here later this spring to keep you up to date on what's happening in state government and politics. Uh, and as always, if you want to keep hearing this, make sure to subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks Tom. Tom.